friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. Um, good to see you all this morning. We're going to kind of finish this idea of beautiful participation. And today I'm going to look at this idea of, in the scripture, there's God's footsteps, when we feel God's footsteps, and then the voice in our head, and how those two relate to each other. And um, hopefully we're participating in the truth rather than what we think God is thinking or God is doing. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24, and then I think the corollary of that, which is in Luke 15. Believe it or not, Luke 15, um, a few verses. So Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. By the way, in the, in the fall, Nike and I are going to go through a series, an overview of the book of Genesis. So when we get to this, I'll give a different sermon. Okay, I'm not going to just regurgitate this, but I want to see, you'll see um, a little bit of some things going on here in, in the origins of what we do, of God's footsteps and the voice in our head. Okay? Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. But the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals, and among all the wild creatures, and upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. And in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall, not be, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, and until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, The humans have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now they might reach out their hands and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent them forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which they were taken. He drove the humans and at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Now from Luke 15 verses 11 to 20. This is the mid-story of the prodigal son. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the wealth that belongs to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region. And there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. These are the Holy Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts and minds together be pleasing to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. It's good to be home. Mary and I were gone last week. We were down at the, in Lakey, Texas um, at a conference that uh, we spoke at. and uh, It was a delight, but we missed you all, and we're glad to be back. Um, in, in the past, I've mentioned some things like, here are some books you might want to look at. I'm going to show you two. Uh, this is a great translation of the Old Testament by a guy named Robert Alter. He taught at University of California. He actually translated the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's just called the Hebrew Bible. Oh, this is so good. Nike and I are kind of geeking out over this. It's a great translation with minimal notes. I highly recommend it, but it comes in three volumes. You're welcome to take a look at that. And again, several times I've mentioned to this David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. The back itself is worth the loan. It's got a horrible title. It's called Concluding Scientific Postscript. Wow. He needs a better marketing agent. That's a horrible name for it. But just the back of the book itself is so worth it. Oh my gosh, really good stuff. Especially as he gets through some of the Pauline epistles. So, okay, um, that's uh, enough of my nerd stuff there. Uh, but I wanted to mention that because I used these two as I was looking into this text. And this idea of beautiful participation. And this idea of God's footsteps and the voice in our head. Um, what we have in Genesis 3 is the story of God and his family. The ancient parents. God had a relationship with his family. He loved them, his family. The first man and first woman loved God. And that first family had some responsibilities and obligations to love God back. They chose not to. They chose to do violence to the relationship. Horrible violence to the relationship. So God met them in the midst of that violent break in their relationship. And they heard God's footsteps. And when they heard God's footsteps, 
Our first parents thought things about God that were not true. And when they heard things that were not true, it caused more and more problems. So I want to kind of take a look into that this morning, okay? Of hearing God's footsteps and then the voice in our head. Um, one thing to look at is this, is that I wish all of us, we could be kind of um, cultural anthropologists. If all of us could be like, uh, let's say that we all lived at the time of Abraham before God met Abraham. And Abraham was like a desert pirate. And these guys were really rough. I mean, really rough. And they had all kinds of beliefs. I'm sure Abraham comes from a family of, of people that had these Assyrian divinities, these Assyrian beliefs in God, and not, not in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the local gods at that time were pretty mean. They were very mean gods. And when they had mean gods, they, they demanded sacrifices. And when you gave them a sacrifice, all it meant is that they would stop bothering you for a while until they showed up again. And so what happens is these angry gods would say, I will bless you, but you owe me. And if you don't give me what I want, the sacrifice that I want I might come and get you. And if I don't get you now, I'll get you later. And if I like your sacrifice, it's good for a few weeks until I see you next time. Does that make sense? So if that, let's say that's our background. Like, oh, we got these gods are really mean, but we got to give this to the sun god, this to the rain god, and you never know when they're going to show up. And if I give you a better gift, how about I give you, I give you an animal? How about I give you um, a really good uh, uh, you know, lasagna? What if I give you one of my kids? And actually, in, in Abraham's family, they actually did that. Abraham probably comes from a lineage of parents and grandparents that may have even sacrificed their own children to get these gods at bay. Now, let's say that's our family background. And then we read Genesis 3. This God would seem so weird to us. Why? Because you would think, okay, here's a God that has a family. All right, good. So this God is really mean. No, he's not mean. What do you mean he's not mean? He, he made a field and he made his family, and then he said, everything that he has, they have. And he made them equal. How did he make them equal? Well, the men and women were equal to each other, and they both had dominion over this whole... So they had like a big playground. Yes. And they were equal. Yes. And, and God just gave it to them. Yes. We've never heard of that before. Oh, wait to hear the rest of it. The family messed up. Oh, here it comes. Good. Good. So what did this God do? Well, he visited them in the playground. And he said, where are you? And they said, oh, we, we don't know. Um, we're, we're naked. And uh, well, this woman you gave me, it's her fault. And by the way, you gave her to me. Didn't you know she had likely had that possibility? So, then he, so Adam's getting into God, and he's blaming God, and he's blaming God. Wait a minute. This guy's blaming this God? Yes. Oh, that God must have been really mad. What did he do? Here's what he did. He made a promise to forgive them by sending his son, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he gave them another gift. What did he give them? He made them clothes. Did he make them go and hunt down the animals? Nope, he did it himself. Wait, so this God made these people, he gave them gifts, and when they screw up, he came and he gave them more gifts? Yes, we don't know what that's about. Does that make sense? That's how the Israelites read the story. We look at all this stuff. They realize, what? We don't know a God like that because when we mess up, the gods demand stuff more from us. But when we mess up, this guy gives us a gift? Yes. Does that make sense? 
So we got to look at it from that perspective. We have to be cultural anthropologists. And I think what it is is that, and it's so interesting, when you look at Genesis 3, if you open up some of your Bibles, it'd be interesting to see what the titles say. It'll say sometimes um, the original sin, right? And when you think of Genesis 3, don't you think of original sin? We all do. You know what's surprising? When we think of the original sin, the word sin is never mentioned. Did you hear the word sin at all in Genesis 3? No, it's not even there. Now, we know that's... So why am I saying that? Well, of course they sinned, but that's not the... When we think of original sin, we think there's a holy law, they sinned against the law, and if you sin against the law, there's consequences to the sin, and it gets very cut and dried. Mm -mm, This is more personal than that. More devastating. More relational. For example, you, you kids and adults... If you have family rules at home, and we had family rules for our kids, we had them on the refrigerator. If we have these family rules at home, and a kid does like violates one through six, like the big ones, we could say, you have just broken one through six of these 15 family rules. Big consequences. I think the kids would rather us say, okay, what are the consequences? I did one through six. We want to keep it at a distance. What the kids don't want to hear is when a dad or a mom goes and says, baby, come here. You violated one through six of the 15 family rules. But here's what really happened. You broke my heart. Why did you think I was not with you? Oh, let's talk about one through six, Dad. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to talk about one through six. I'm not going to talk about one through six. I'm not going to keep it moral. I'm not going to keep it like a law. This is me. We gave you everything and you didn't trust us. Can we talk about why... Oh, no, no, let's talk about the consequences. We'd want to keep it what? Distant like that. And what's going on here is very relational. And when we talk about language of moral law and sin, and this, we, get, we get very judicial this way, it's far more personal. It's far more personal and more devastating. Is it sinful? Yes, it's sinful. It's more than sinful. It's violating the relationship God has with his kids. And God wants to make up with them. And what what begins to happen is that, and here's the thing. The original sin is original to every one of us in this way. The original sin is when we think we hear God's footsteps and we make up stories about God that are not true and then we start blaming other people. Now here's what's very beautiful about this story. Um, It says that, I think of the old Elvis song in the garden. I walk in the garden alone, I hear Elvis Presley's voice. Great song. But that God is walking in the cool of the day, that word cool is not the word cool of the day. The word cool is actually the word spirit. Ruach. It's the same word in Genesis 1 verse 2. And that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And the earth was formless and void or waste and wheel. And the spirit of God was hovering. So what happened was is that what the writer of Genesis is doing, he's reminding the readers, do you remember that in verse 1 where it was all this kind of waste and wheel and God's spirit came in when there was deep confusion and darkness and weirdness and God came in to heal? What's happening in Genesis 3 is there's waste and wheel with what's going on with Adam and Eve. All kinds of nonsense. They are sinning against God. It is sin, but it's more than that. It's not just the law. It's a person. And God's face to face with them and said, why don't you trust me? And there's waste and wheel, and God is coming, just like he did in Genesis 1 and 2, to bring light 
into this darkness? He's coming to bring light, and Adam and Eve don't believe him. They're running away. They believe that God is out to get them. They were hiding. They believed that God was out to get them. They did not believe that God was a good person out to help them. That God was out to destroy them. So Adam, believing that story, got real original with his sin. He blamed God, and then he blamed his wife. Genesis 3, verse 12, to me, is the original sin. Because it shows the two things that got wrong. When, when our first parent heard the footsteps of God, he thought God was out to get him, not heal him. And the second thing he did, as he, after he blamed God, like, you gave her to me, and she did it, and what do you want me to do? I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I need an attorney. Wow. Dude, chill out. You don't believe that God is good. And when you don't believe that God is good, you make really bad decisions about how to handle your sin. So the original sin is not just, in this sense, what Adam did to God. The original sin also was how he healed the problem. And how did he heal the problem? Through scapegoating his wife. Did you guys see that there? It's through scapegoating Eve. So we had the it's God's fault, and it's her fault, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame her. Oh, I feel better about myself. That's the cycle. That's the original sin cycle. And I, I think we do it all the time. Nika says often, I say often too, that, that God is good, and that God is the source of all goodness. When you and I are doing things that are bad, and we feel the breath of God in some sense, or our conscience coming against us, what's the story in our head why God is coming to us? What are we telling ourselves about God? What are we telling ourselves? Are we saying that God is a good father, and whatever judgment or justice God is bringing, he's doing it for my good? Or do we think that God is out to get us? If we think that God is out to get us, we will be victimized. God's out to get me. My boss is out to get me. My kids are out to get me. Well, it's their fault. And we start the cycle. God's footsteps and the voice in our heads. Now, it's a great counterbalance to this, if you've ever thought about this. When you think of Luke 15, we often think of, oh, the prodigal son. Right? Did you ever think that the prodigal son is the model of how someone who's experiencing the tohu wabohu, the, 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 the void of life, the waste of life, he tells himself a story about his father, and he tells the truth to himself, and as he tells the truth to himself about his father, he takes personal responsibility for his wrongdoing, and he goes home knowing that his father is good and will heal him. It's so different than our first parents. It's like a corrective of Genesis chapter 3. It's a corrective. Think about the story. Jesus says, he's asked, well, why do you care about these people? He said, well, my father cares about them, and I want to tell you a story about this. This dad had two kids. One kid said, dad, give me all that I want, and I'm out of here. Doesn't that sound like our first parents? Give me my stuff, and this is, this is the younger son taking a bite out of the apple. He goes... Oh, and he has a good time. Good time until there's no more money left. 
and his life is miserable. And he feels, in some sense, like the breath of God on his neck. He begins to think about his father. And he doesn't say to himself, I am naked and ashamed. What he says to himself, the people that work for my dad have more than I have. I've got a really good dad. He's kind to people, even people that are not his family. I'm going to go home. The void, when he hears God's footsteps, his thought about God is that God is a good person. Do you hear that? You see that? And then as he begins to go home, even before he repents, who's making a fool out of himself to come and take care of that little boy? Who's no longer a little boy? The father. Oh, what a good story. What a good story. I think what Jesus is doing in a very clever way of saying, all of us have our own original sin pattern. All of us have the voice. We, we hear God's footsteps. All of us have the voice in our heads of what we say about God. All of us have ways of blaming others. And God says, no, take personal responsibility. You know what I find fascinating? What I find fascinating is that if you look at what, what happens in recovery groups, especially groups that use the big book, they're following a Luke 15 pattern. In the big book, they say, listen, you've messed up, but don't make excuses. Don't blame others. But you need to have a vision of God that God's a really good person. And before you can lean into this God, you have to be able to trust this God. So wipe out the notion that some God, as, with their breath on your back, is out to get you. What if God is not out to get you? What if God is good? If you believe that God is good, you can't blame that God for your problem. Imagine that. Now, as you may, uh, believe that that God is good, begin to take responsibility for your own sins. Don't talk about your parents. Don't talk about your job. Don't talk about your grandparents. Don't talk about all your misfortunes. Talk about what you did. Now you can deal with it. Does that make sense? I think what's happened is that Sometimes our view of original sin means that's Adam's problem. I think what we need to do, at least according to looking at Genesis 3 and Luke 15 together, is believe that original sin is kind of original to each one of us. And we all got our own spin on it. We got to take it in. I think that's harder for us. And that's the truth. God's footsteps and the voice in our heads. God is not out to get you. He's out to restore you. So don't blame your mom. Don't blame your dad. Own up. Knowing that God is good. And he's going to talk to you about your own culpability. Sometimes in our theologies, we talk about what Adam did, and it's his fault, and Jesus corrected it, and that's all true, but we miss something very important. It's not just what Adam did. It's what I did. It's what you did. Because if we focus on what Adam did, we can have the same attitude that Adam had, which is, well, God, you gave me that great-grandpa, Adam, and it's his fault, so what are you looking at me for? I didn't start it. He did Deal with him. Oh, we love the blaming. We can blame God. We can blame Adam. No. Stop the blaming. 
God's a good person. He's not out to get you. In a book called Abba's Child, and some of you may have read it because we gave everyone copies of it. We love that book. Abba's Child is a great book. Brendan Manning wrote it. But in the beginning of the book, he talks about a short story written by Flannery O'Connor. Some of you think, oh, I don't remember that part. Well, let me tell you about it. There's a short story called The Turkey. And in that, that short story, The Turkey, the turkey is this idea that it's about this kid that hunts a turkey and then he, does, he doesn't get it, but then it gets stolen from him anyway. But the idea of the turkey is that if you ever have a good gift, God's out to get you. He's going to take it away. He's going to take it away so you can't trust that God. You've got to run like crazy from that God. And the whole point what Brennan is doing in the book is, no, you're Abba's child. You're Abba's child. And that whenever you feel God coming towards you, and even if it feels like he's going to deal with your sin, which is a form of judgment or justice, he's going to correct it. Trust that he's a good person. God's footsteps always are heavy, but they're heavy with mercy to take away the thing that's hurting you. He's not just waiting to nail you and nail me. And what I, what I love about this story is that I, I just see this wonderful parallel of, of Genesis 3 and Luke 15, and we always think of this prodigal son as the screw-up. We never see him as the model of what it means to how we view God and how we repent. He's the model. He's the model. When he was at his worst, he said, I have a really good dad. What am I doing? I treated him as though he were dead. I spent everything that he gave me. I disowned him. And I know if I go home, he's not going to disown me. I know that he's never going to treat me the way I treated him. And he's right. Britt talked about the Mandela effect earlier. We have this idea in our head. And sometimes this idea is not in keeping with reality. I think very often that when we feel afraid, we have a Mandela effect about God. We don't believe that God is really, really good and wants our best. I think Jesus shows us in that story of Luke 15, this is not only what God's like, this is how we should be when we mess up. We're going to mess up. We're going to mess up. We're going to hear God's footsteps. And as we hear God's footsteps, are we telling the right story about that God? Because if we tell the right story about that God, it's going to make it easier for us to change our mind and repent. Because we realize, boy, I really messed up. Yes, you did, honey. Boy, I really thought, yeah, I didn't believe you were good. No, you didn't. I am good. Oh, okay. I'm really sorry. I know. I accept your apology. You are forgiven. God's a really good God. Let's participate in that story. Let's get rid of the Mandela effect. Know that he cares for you and loves you. And when you think of original sin, don't just think what Adam did. Think about what you do and what I do. So easy to blame someone else. I think we need to realize that original sin is original to each one of us in a very real way. And we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. And God wants to deal with it. So, let's let him. Because he's a really, really good father. And he's given us his son. And he'll heal us. He always does. Let's pray.
Father, we're grateful for you. We're grateful that as we think about you, and especially when we're doing wrong things, we project onto you um, characterizations that are not true, that you're vindictive, that you're out to get us. Yes, you are upset. Yes, you are full of light and holiness and justice. And you're there, Lord, to correct the things in us and to take them away, but not to destroy us. Forgive us for the times that we blame you and then blame others. And Lord Jesus, thanks for giving us a picture of how your Father is and how you are and your rescue of us in the good news of your gospel. But also, Lord, giving us a model to follow, to think well of you when we fail, and to run home quickly knowing that you will heal us. Please, Lord, help us follow you this way. We ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.